Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Please note this podcast is not suitable for children. You're listening to Justice, a podcast series exploring all aspects of the criminal justice system with me, prison philanthropist and founder of One Small Thing, Edwina Grosvenor. In this episode, I catch up with Enver Solomon, Chief Executive of Just for Kids Law, to find out how the charity is responding to COVID-19 and the problems the children and young people they work with are facing. My name's Enver Solomon. I'm the chief executive of the charity Just for Kids Law. We're a London-based charity that work with young people aged mainly between 10 and 25, supporting them to get their legal rights and entitlements respected and promoted. Enver, thank you for being with me today. Can you give me a bit of an overview on how things have changed on the front line for your charity? And how are the children? Where are the children? It's been a massive change for us. Um, we're seeing the impact of COVID-19 on the young people we work with in, in a really big way and in lots of, of different ways. Um, one of the most stark ones is is the dramatic increase we've had every week since we've been in lockdown in relation to hardship requests. So these are requests that come to us when a young person is really on the edge facing you know destitution run out of cash run out of money to to buy food and is in really in a desperate situation and we have a small ring fence fund where we'll um, provide a small amount of financial support so food vouchers or even pay for a hotel room and we've had a, a massive demand for that. Normally, we see a couple of months. We're seeing, you know, uh, almost one every day, um, because of of the need to 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 buy food, uh, being in a situation under lockdown, where they can't access benefits or they can't get support if they're a care leaver. Then, you know, young people really in, in desperate financial straits. Can I ask we, we, how much they typically might ask for? So, so on average, it's it's up to about fifty pounds. You know, mostly recently, it's it's been food vouchers um, that we've been providing for young people so that they can get get food that they need. Um, and then other things we've been seeing. So we've seen that for young people who should be getting support from social services, they've had difficulty in terms of um, getting in touch with their social worker. So social workers not always responding to calls, not being able to visit young people and, and just not seeing them and general delays um, in in contact. And quite alarmingly, we've, we've seen young people leaving care being told that the local authority isn't able to provide them with leaving care accommodation at the moment. We've had a couple exa- of examples of that. Then they're in a situation where they have to 
um, go and live with friends or with people who they know will will, will put them up. Um, and they're not able to observe social distancing. They're being put in a very difficult situation where that heightens their concern about catching corona. And it, it's it's far from ideal and, and frankly not really good enough. Um, now, local authorities, you know, we know and acknowledge they're under the cosh. They're under, you know, huge strain and stress. Some of their staff are having to be off sick. There are huge demands in responding to the crisis. But from our view, you know, these are very vulnerable young people, some of the most vulnerable young people in our communities. And the state in its role as corporate parents should really be going the extra mile for these young people. You know, every parent across the land at the moment wants to do everything it can to look after their children or, or you know, if they're young adults, a lot of young adults have gone back home to be with their parents. That, that should be the same response from the state. But unfortunately, it doesn't appear to be the case. And those children leaving care, would they be leaving care because they're 18 years old and therefore they don't need to be in care anymore? I'm just trying to work out what age those children might be. Yes. Yeah, so you can actually leave care at 16, which okay. is, is ridiculous. Not that many young people do, but, but you can. And one thing we think is the leaving care age should be increased to 18. But the majority will leave at the age of 18 um, or or over. So these these will be 18-year-olds who are looking to leave care um, and want leaving care accommodation um, and, you know, wanting to start off an independent life for themselves. And what other reason might children be needing to get in contact with their social workers and therefore the lack of contact, what problems is that leading to? So un under the regulations, if you're a child in care, you, you should have a visit from your social worker uh, every six weeks and you should have regular contact. And if you're leaving care, you should have something that's called a pathway plan that should be regularly reviewed and revised and developed in consultation with your social worker. So it's those kind of contacts that young people are finding it difficult to maintain and are not getting the response. That, that they would like from social services, I think. And and the other thing that um, we've seen and we've been having a bit of a, a, a heated discussion with the government around is the government have brought forward proposals and, and revised guidance to reduce the legal uh, statutory provisions that should be in place for children in care and care leavers. The rationale being on, on the part of the government that local authorities are under the cosh it's a national crisis. You can't expect them to do everything that they should be doing um, because of the demands and pressures they're facing. Our response is that, you know, these vulnerable children need more help, not less. And the government shouldn't be allowing local authorities to loosen the statutory support that should be provided for children in care and care leavers. So that's a significant concern. Can they just do that without passing legislation? So they've revised the statutory guidance and then they've laid a secondary legislation, what is known as statutory instruments, um, to enable local authorities to effectively weaken the level of support um, available to children in care. Um, and, you know, whilst we understand the rationale, we think there's there's no reason this should be happening. Sorry to interrupt, but it gets me really irritated because you've been, this is the second time you've been on the podcast. And for our listeners, um, you can go back in the library and listen to our, the first podcast we did together. But, and it was the same question I asked then, you know, with all these things like the Children's Act 
um, the celebrated Children's Act of 30 years ago and the Every Child Matters. It always comes back to, and this is what gets me so irritated, I'm sure you too, every child matters unless you're a vulnerable one. That's right. And you would hope at a time of national crisis, the state would want to really step up and demonstrate that it, it wants to do everything within its power to support vulnerable children and really go the extra mile for them. And it seems quite concerning, frankly, and, and really alarming that they've decided to allow local authorities to ease and, and reduce the level of support they have to provide uh, in law to, to children in the care system. Um, now, they're saying this is in an absolute um, only in exceptional circumstances, but even so, you know, we, we believe that it should never be happening and actually local authorities should be doing everything to support these young people. Um, in relation, if I can move on to another area, in relation to the criminal justice system, um, we, we've seen essentially the police basically not observing social distancing and behaving as though nothing has really changed. We had one custody sergeant in a South London police station uh, inform one of our lawyers that it was business as usual having detained a 17-year-old for spitting uh, at three o'clock in the afternoon and then not releasing that 17-year-old till six o'clock the following morning and not observing um, the guidance that's been handed down by the National Police Chiefs Council about how the police should be operating during this time and just continuing as though nothing had really changed. And, and that's of, of you know significant concern because it appears that the police are not really changing practice on the ground um, in the way that they should be and they appear to be arresting and detaining young people for minor infractions and then not observing uh, the appropriate procedures to ensure that a young person isn't at risk from catching corona when that happens. So we've raised concerns with the Mayor's Office of Policing in London and with the National Police Chiefs Council. The problem that appears to be playing out is that the, the senior echelons of the police and leaders uh, think things should be happening on the ground and have told the lower commands to do that, but it doesn't appear to be, always be the case. Mm. Well, I did wonder about police custody suites and people being arrested because you can't stay two metres away from someone if you're arresting them. I mean, whether it's right or wrong, someone being arrested is um, obviously different in different situations. but. I have been wondering um, how the police sort of get around that. Yeah, and, and it's, a, it's, it's a challenge and they should be, you know, there's guidance that's been handed down um, by police chiefs to ensure that, you know, detention is only a last resort. The Crown Prosecution Service have made it very clear that young people should be diverted away uh, from arrest. Um, that it should only be happening for the most serious crimes, that detention in a police station should be absolute last resort. But from what we've been seeing, that isn't always the case. And clearly, you know, if you have a custody sergeant saying it's business as usual, that suggests that the police aren't really uh, adjusting their practice because of the, the situation we're in. And what about schools? Your organisation does a lot of work with school exclusions. And of course, children aren't in school. And has that been a worry for you? We've heard a lot on news, of course, and with a lot of vulnerable children, I think um, school can often be a safe haven. So are you seeing anything in particular around the school area? It, it is a significant concern for us that so many um, 
children and young people are out of school and particularly alarming that, you know, the government was expecting um, and made provisions for so-called vulnerable children, including children that might be have a special education need to be in school. But the national figures shows that only 5% of those children are actually uh, attending school still. So that suggests to us that they're children with high levels of need who uh, have slipped below the radar uh, and are nowhere near the education system. We're particularly concerned that um, schools, uh, as the lockdown eases, will um, not necessarily um, go and ensure that those young people who might have had a difficult relationship with their school are back in the classroom because it might be in their interest, so to speak, to allow them to slip off the school roll, particularly if they were young people who were at risk of exclusion. Uh, and we know lots of schools don't take uh, an approach to that which is inclusive, but actually uh, will look to try and uh, ensure children are excluded because they find it difficult managing them in the classroom because they would say they don't have the resources to support them. But we're also concerned that, again, the government seems to have relaxed the legal provisions here and have given permission to schools and local authorities to reduce the, the timescales that are in place to ensure a young person with special education needs are given the support that they're entitled to in the form of what's called a, an education health and care plan. They've relaxed the timetables for local authorities to put those in place. And we already knew that many councils across the country, and particularly in London, we're not meeting those timetables. So that in effect gives them permission to not put the support in place that they should be putting in, in place for those uh, young people with special education needs. So again, it seems that the system here, the education system is, is not going the extra mile to support the most vulnerable young people. I'm sure there are lots of very committed teachers across the country who are wanting to do the best but it's the message that's coming out from government is that actually we will give you um, permission to not have to meet timescales, to not have to provide the support that you should be providing in a timely manner, which allows schools the latitude to not in effect again, go the extra mile for a, a particular group of vulnerable children. And then I guess it must be difficult for you because your organisation then steps in, doesn't it, often with lawyers and you can fight for the rights of children by using lawyers. That must be quite difficult for you at the moment because, of course, you want to carry on doing that. But then, of course, we are in this exceptionally strange, never been in before situation. And of course, everyone's fighting either personal or professional battles or lots of people both. So where do you stand then on the sort of middle ground of wanting to do the best for the children? Yes, understanding that obviously things are very weird <laughs> at the minute. Yeah, I mean, we, we recognise, you know, as I've said, that um, local authority schools are under enormous pressure. And the majority of people that work in, in um, public services are there because they want to do the best. You know, I don't, I don't think they have any intention of um, consciously and deliberately not providing support for, for vulnerable children and young people. However, the system often conspires against them. And for us, you know, we are there for the young people we represent. So whilst we might recognise that well-meaning local authorities and schools 
uh, and police officers um, do exist uh, and do want to do the best for young people and, and um, ensure that their needs are met and act in their best interests. It doesn't always happen and we have to put um, the rights of the children and young people we work with first and if that means that we will be in a position of disagreement with, with those in authority, um, we will do that. You know, our mission uh, and what we say we do is about holding those with power over children and young people to account. And, and we have to do that, whether it's a time of national crisis or not. And in, and in fact, the, the children and young people we work with, we feel need it more than ever before because they're in, in such a difficult position. And, you know, who else is there for them to, to, to fight on their behalf and to speak up for them and ensure that they get what they're entitled to? What are you saying on the immigration side of things? Because, again, your organisation works in this field and it's not something I've heard a great deal about on the news, actually, over the last few weeks. Maybe I've just missed it. But what's sort of happening on the immigration side of things? Essentially, the immigration system, um, in terms of face-to-face -face hearings and face-to-face um, -face assessments and interviews conducted by, by Home Office officials, have, have come to a standstill. And we are particularly concerned about issues relating to access to justice for young immigrants, migrants who, who need support and who need to get their applications processed. Um, firstly, we're particularly concerned that um, a lot of uh, immig immigration legal firms are going to struggle to survive um, because of the lockdown and um, because of cash flow problems. And that could result in a, in a massive decrease in the provision of, of legal immigration support and advice. And, and if, if that happens, then there's, there's going to be less good quality legal representation available for young immigrants, young migrants. Um, you know, another thing we've seen is where expert medical evidence is required, so consultations and examinations to gather that medical evidence to make the case for an immigration, uh, an immigration claim, um, it's impossible for those to take place due to the social distancing measures. Um, and then, um, as I was saying, the, the, the method for hearing immigration claims, if you're challenging a decision in what's known as the first tier immigration tribunal system, um, they're not operating face-to-face -face hearings. They've all been suspended. So all evidence and assessments um, are not taking place in person. Uh, and we feel that that's, that means that it's difficult to make good quality decisions because um, it, it requires the, the presentation of individuals, um, evidence to be taken in person for there to be good quality decisions. So that, that's another concern we have. Having said that, we, we have had a situation where we effe effectively ensured a young person who was detained um, in an immigration detention centre was granted bail. Uh, and we managed to get that bail hearing to take place and it was done over the phone with, with a judge. Um, so that was an example of, of you know, the system was responding successfully. Um, but it, it, it's difficult in the immigration system at the moment and the quality of decision making, I think, is going to be compromised. And there's also a risk that um, those within the system who have always been pushing to have more um, 
more more tribunals and and hearings heard remotely will take this as an opportunity for that to happen, and it could lead to uh, a reducing the uh, a reduction in the quality of decision making in the future. But you know we'll, we'll have to see about that. I, th I think our biggest concern is the availability of legal advice and support and good quality immigration advice could really be hit if a number of providers have to leave a so-called marketplace because they're just unable to, to stay in business. But isn't there an argument also to say, I understand, you know, what you lose when you're not face to face with someone and being in a room with someone is obviously very different to how we're all operating at the moment over Skype and whatever. But is there not also an argument to say that tech is quicker, it's cheaper, people don't get stuck on trains? Could there not be more going through the system? So I think there is a, there is a, a credible argument for pre-hearing. So that's where the process uh, commences prior to a, to a full tribunal hearing, where those are done through technology uh, to, to quicken decision-making process and potentially to uh, ensure that, you know, a decision could be taken for a, for a hearing to be dropped and found to be unnecessary. Um, so, you know, we don't have a problem with that. The issue we have is that when you have a full hearing uh, to, to make a, an important decision about immigration status, oral evidence and the assessment of credibility uh, are often fundamental. And to do that assessment effectively, it's our view that face-to-face -face hearings are required. So we, we won't want to see anything compromised in that regard, but there may be ways that you can use technology, as I say, to ensure that pre-hearings are done more efficiently and more speedily um, than currently is the case. And as a chief executive, you've got a challenging job at the best of times. How have you found it on a personal level, sort of being a chief executive in these times? And, and what are you finding, the sort of funding challenges, the staffing challenges you have, let alone the vulnerable children that you you serve? It's incredibly challenging, more challenging than it would be ordinarily in, in lots of different ways. I mean, particularly for our staff, you know, our staff um, work with a lot of young people that have experienced high levels of trauma, and it can be very difficult and challenging for staff. And when they're having to do that in their own home, their home no longer becomes a place where they can separate from work and where they can see it as a as a place which is for them to to chill out, to relax, to be away from work. I'd never thought about that actually. The loss of that separation is really being felt by by my staff team at the moment. I had one of our youth advocates on the phone to a young person last week um, who was self harming while she was talking to him. Now, our staff member was 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 doing that and supporting that young person but they were having to do that from their kitchen table. And then when they finished the call, they were unable to turn to a colleague to debrief, to their manager to debrief, to look for support from other staff members in the way, in the way they would do ordinarily if they're in the office or they were coming back to the office from a meeting. And, and that makes it doubly difficult for staff, I think. And, and just not having that separation between home and work is, is really tough. Um, and I think it's quite isolating doing challenging work uh, alone. Um, and they also are finding it hard not being able to, to meet young people because our work is very relational. It's based on 
human contact. We do a lot of telephone support and that's what we're doing entirely at the moment. And where we can observe social distancing, there have been cases where we've uh, been with a young person at a police station or with them to address a, a homelessness issue with the, with a local authority. We have been doing that, but staff are also worried about you know the situation with Corona, um, catching Corona, um, about their own health and well-being. So they're under more strain and stress than than they would be ordinarily, I think. And for the organisation, you know, it's tough because we've suddenly had to start thinking about how we support young people to work from home. I've got staff sat on sofas, on laptops at home. If they're doing that week after week, that their their uh, working environment is not going to support their health and well-being so those are the real challenges at the moment and there aren't any obvious solutions that that's the other thing because you know the staff are very committed we want to continue our work we don't want to shut up shop and there's no way we would, would we would ever ever do that um but we have to think of ways of of how we support staff how we allow them to have more time out we're going to start doing um home working assessments so we can ensure that people have a good home working environment but all this comes with additional costs you know we're gonna have to think of um uh, ppe equipment for for some of our our staff if they are going out to meet young people um and it's additional costs and you know a lot of our funders fortunately are trusts and foundations who are stepping up to meet our needs but you know we, we don't know what the future holds and it's very difficult to know what the longer term funding situation is going is going to be. Are you finding that people are being flexible and um, supportive? I'm sure you are. They are. They're being very supportive. All our trusts and foundations are being very flexible and supportive. Uh, and some have put in place additional emergency funding, which, which is fantastic. Um, I think our concern is not the funding situation now, but it's in you know, 9, 12, 18 months when people have actually perhaps already put their emergency funding pots in place and they're no longer there and the longer term consequences are hitting us as an organisation. So one thing we're saying to funders is take the long view, don't just think about the immediate here and now because I think the world is going to radically change, there's, there's going to be a new normal. I think you're right, sort of where we'll be in a year's time, two years time will be very different. That's right. And trying to plan for that and prepare for that is really difficult at the moment um, because, you know, it, it's not clear what the situation is, is is going to be. You know, we were hoping to move to a new office and, you know, whether we can follow through with that is, is, is not clear. So it just creates more challenges for an organisation to think about uh, and more challenges to try and negotiate and work through. Um, when you're already dealing, you know, with quite a lot of complexities and, and a lot of difficult issues already. So the budget that you'd have annually, how much extra, just roughly back of the fag packet, do you think you need annually on top of your normal annual budget as an organisation? So, I mean, we we think, you know, de definitely getting on for five, ten percent more. Um, you know, if we're going to take seriously the need to support staff to be able to work from home and to put all the things in place that they need to put in the kind of welfare support for staff, you know, um, frontline practice is tough. 
And the quality of your frontline practice depends on looking after your staff so they're able to do the best job possible. And that comes with a cost. If you're going to put in additional clinical supervision or therapeutic support, and that's going to be needed more than we previously thought. So, so all these things, these things definitely add up. So it is going to increase our costs. And 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 as we ease out of lockdown, we're also expecting a surge in demand. So we want to look at whether we can put more capacity into our youth advocacy team to be able to work with more young people because. Um, not only um, is is there going to be an increase in demand, but the nature of the casework that we do, I think, is going to be more demanding because the level of need that, that we're trying to address is going to be more acute. So that means that the capacity for an individual to work with more young people is reduced because the complexity of the individuals they're working with is greater. So that there's all kinds of, of challenges there in ensuring that we can try and meet the need that we want to respond to and increase capacity. And, you know, it's particularly telling, I think, that the, the, the dramatic decline in child protection referrals to local authorities during lockdown, some local authorities have seen them cut by a half, by a quarter. And all the indication is, is there will be a, a massive surge as we ease out of lockdown and those kind of referrals, those child protection referrals, very serious referrals will spike. And as a consequence, we'll see a knock on demand for our work, too. So it's thinking about planning for that as well. But you, um, just for kids law, are still open for business, right? So if anyone's listening that um, might need or want to get in touch, be that someone who works in the third sector or be that a young person, um, is the best place to visit your website? Yeah, that's right. We're we're very much open for business. Go to our our website, um, www.justforkidslaw.org, and we're there and available. And there's information about the COVID situation. We've tried to put more resources on our website as well uh, to support young people and for other organisations. And yeah, we're very much open for business. So if you need our support, do come to us. Great, Ember. Thank you so much. Thank you. Links relevant to this episode can be found in the pod notes below. If you enjoyed listening, we would love it if you would subscribe. Also rate, review and best of all, share this episode. Justice is co-produced for One Small Thing by the London Podcast Company and Pencil Agency. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.